The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter Two, Farm Tour. You really didn't have to come along, said Margaret. Yes, I did, replied Martin. The two of them sat on the package shelf of Jen's two-wheel trap. Jasmine had grown more accustomed to the harness and trotted with a steady rhythm. The town farm might not be far away, but I'm sure not going to let you travel around alone. Martin expected the usual rebuttal, that he worried too much or that she would be just fine. Margaret was protective of her self-sufficiency. Instead of a rebuttal, however, he got a wry smile. She knew he was right to be cautious. Even though she had the nine mil in her coat pocket and Jen wore a revolver on her hip, an extra pair of eyes and a gun were merely prudent in their new world. It's nice that we don't have to walk, she said. Got that right. Glad Jen's got some sort of deal to run Jasmine in the trap between town center, town farm, and the dairy. She needs a bigger rig, said Margaret. Barely enough room for two passengers. No room for cargo. The unsprung trap bounced hard over the uneven road that led to Webster's farm. Martin and Margaret had to hold on tight to the back bar. Jen pulled Jasmine into the half-circle gravel drive in front of the 18th-century farmhouse. Jasmine pranced to a stop. Standing around was not as appealing to the young Morgan as trotting on the open road. She tugged at her reins impatiently while a man with a canvas bag took Martin and Margaret's place on the back of the trap. "'I'll be back in two hours,' said Jen. She only needed to give a little flick of the reins. Jasmine trotted out onto the road. Eh, "'Thanks for coming,' Mrs. Webster called out from the front door. "'Come on in. Uh, the kitchen's this way.' Don Webster met them in the hallway. Eh, "'The kitchen's kind of small for a crowd.' Uh, that's okay, said Martin. I'm really just travel protection. Mind if I look around outside here? Uh, no problem. Don looked over Martin's shoulder. Paul! Uh, hey, Paul! Come here a sec. A young man carrying an axe altered his course toward the front door. I'd like you to meet one of my key men, Don pointed to Paul. This is Paul Frenault. He's been a big helper around here. My other key man, Jerry, uh, well, he just went to town to fetch some medical supplies. Paul began to extend his hand as he walked up, but then put it in his pocket. Oh, I remember you. You're that guy that brought the Perez family but kicked out the Dunnans. Uh, yeah, I guess that's me, said Martin, as he put his hand in his coat pocket, too. Paul can show you around while I help the ladies with their inventory. Now, uh, if you'll excuse me, uh, the ladies await. So, what did you want to see? Paul asked, with no enthusiasm. Well, I don't know. Martin glanced around. Just figured that if Margaret was going to be here each day for a week, I'd better have a look around so I know what's here. Paul shrugged. Yeah, whatever. This here's the main house. Twenty-five adults, counting Mr. and Mrs. Webster. Three teens, seven kids. Paul stood in place for a moment, as if he was done giving the tour. Uh, what about in the barn? Martin asked with a nod toward the big red structure. Yeah, I suppose, Paul said. As they walked, Paul glanced at Martin a few times, trying not to appear obvious. Something bothering you, Paul? 
Paul stopped a few steps from the barn door. Maybe. Heard you went berserk for no good reason, nearly killed Adam. Then you threw him and Trish out and kept all their food. Well, I'm sure that's how Adam tells it, said Martin. Truth is, he was a shirker. He and Trish ate more than the selectmen left with them. The last straw was Trish and him trying to play mind games to get extra food. Martin stared Paul in the eye. I don't tolerate that. And, as for trying to kill Adam, if I wanted to kill him, I would have. A hint of a smile flickered around the corners of Paul's mouth. Hmm, I wondered what the real story was. I've only known Adam for a little while, but he is a bit of a shirker and prone to drama. Paul stepped over to pull up the latch on a little people door set within the larger sliding door of the barn. This is the front door, so to speak. Step high over the frame. The interior of the barn had only a few small windows, like square moons in a night sky. The air was cool, with a mellow, earthy scent. It takes a little bit for your eyes to adjust, Paul said, but they do. In the barn, we've got thirteen adults, two teens, three kids. Paul waved back to one of the kids on a top bunk. Arranged around a pot-bellied stove was an open-ended octagon of bunk beds constructed of two-by-fours. On the outfacing sides were hung blankets and old draperies. Blue tarps were hung from posts in the loft rafters to form a soft ceiling over the bunk space. Bags and boxes filled the spaces between the bottoms of the bunks and the floors. The barn's residents were making an effort to contain their heat and cut down on drafts. Several listless adults sat in folding chairs near the stove. With the rigged-up tarps and such, it's reasonable in the sleeping area. The Websters haven't kept animals in here for years, so it doesn't smell eh, much. When it rains, it does smell a bit like horse poop, especially downstairs. Paul pointed to a boxed-in stairway in the corner. We've got a sorry indoor outhouse set up down below. If it gets a bit pungent, we open up the windows and the back door for a bit of air. I thought you had a room in the house, said Martin. Oh, about half at a time, Paul said. He motioned toward the front door. Martin followed him outside. After just the first week, there was brewing up some resentment over who lived in the barn and who lived in the house. I suggested to Don that every couple of days a pair of us families in those would rotate with families in the barn. After we started rotating, the whining went down. There was still whining? Oh, some. Most of these people aren't used to physical labor or discomfort or not eating three big meals a day or more. They also had to leave their homes. This is all a bit of a culture shock, to put it kindly. I know it was for Ellie and me, sure. I was in okay shape, worked out in the gym a few days a week, but I was a copier salesman. A pretty darn good one, too, if I say so myself. Could rattle off for you all of the stats and features of the whole biz hub line and spout studies on why KM beats Rico and Cannon, etc. None of that matters now, of course. Yeah, I work for a software company, Martin nodded. Not a lot of call for that nowadays, either. Paul nodded. Yeah, that's most of these folks. They had desk jobs or sat at computers all day, hauling water or hay bales or splitting wood. Well, they're not used to that. Some of them get it, but some refuse to accept it. All kinds of whiny, as if some mean waiter had sat them too close to the kitchen doors. 
A couple of them seem to figure if they just complain loud enough, someone will come and bring their old life back. Martin shook his head. <laughs> no, nobody has their old life anymore. Is that why the people in here look so down? Martin asked. No, oh, the work is part of it, but there's this, too. As they rounded the corner of the barn, Paul pointed to a long woodpile. Don had several cord of wood laid up before all of this happened, but with four fires in the house each night and a stove in the barn, it's going down faster than he imagined. Everybody here can see that the wood isn't going to last the winter at the rate we're using it. There was a little ray of hope when Jerry got out the chainsaw and cut down that old maple. But when the gas ran out, well, they started to despair again. Looks like you could split up maybe half a cord from what you've got. Martin tried to sound upbeat. He felt a twinge of guilt, knowing that he still had a few gallons of gasoline left, and a pint of two-cycle oil. He had been careful, to the point of obsessive, about saving what resources he had. Here were people in need. Whether it was prudence or callousness, he reminded himself that his own household's future had to come first. Even his few gallons wouldn't solve their wood shortage. Yeah, said Paul. But we all know it won't be enough. Some of them are back in their funk. A few of them have been grumbling behind Don's back. Seems like there isn't enough work to do any more to keep them busy and their minds off things. Didn't take much more than a week to get all that hay brought in from the back field and even hauled it over to the dairy. Only a few of us are up to splitting wood. The rest are just kind of sitting around thinking about being cold. Yeah, it's not good. Martin had steeled himself to not volunteering the last of his gasoline, but still wanted to help. Well, there'll be a while in the kitchen. How about we split some of this while we wait? You've got an axe. Is there a splitting mall? Oh, not that I've heard of, Paul said. Don's son usually came down and processed their wood for his folks, but he's not coming down anymore. Paul stroked his chin. We can look in the tool shed. Jerry said it's full of junk. The shed's single small window was inadequate lighting. Martin tried to avoid using his flashlight, as a general rule, to avoid draining the batteries. The solar chargers were slow and barely able to keep up with his walkie-talkies needs and Judy's radio. Nonetheless, a few seconds of light were needed. The shed was a jumble of random junk. Rusty iron parts in buckets or wooden boxes cluttered the floor. Tangles of rusty chains hung from nails in the walls. From the musty odor and the layer of dust, it was clear that Don hadn't been in his tool shed for a long time. A couple of guys have already been through here, Paul said. They said it was all just a bunch of junk. Oh, I don't know, Martin disagreed. What's that back there? Here, hold my light. Martin stepped on a box and reached in a corner beside a cluttered workbench. He pulled on a knob of wood, which turned out to be the end of a long wooden handle. Aha! A sledgehammer. Seen better days, but the handle feels sound. And look up there, on the rafter, a big crosscut saw. It's all rusty. Just like a decoration now, like people sell on eBay. Oh, maybe. But for now, the sledge'll do. We need some wedges, though. Martin rummaged in the boxes and buckets. He brought some promising chunks out into the daylight for a better review. Oh, these two ought to make passable wedges. Let's go split some wood. Paul swung the big axe with zeal, but the sharp edge stuck deep in the dry maple. It took determined prying to get it loose. 
Martin placed one of his improvised wedges into the crack that the axe had created. Use the back side of the axe head. We'll take turns hammering it in. After a half a dozen strikes, the log cracked. Okay, now we'll exploit this crack. It took four strikes before a quarter of the log broke free. Cool, Paul smiled. I can split up chunks that size. Let's wedge up some more. Martin and Paul hammered wedges into all of the sections that the chainsaw had cut to length. The rhythmic clanging of steel on steel brought out some curiosity seekers. One of the men took over with the axe, giving Paul a break to take his coat and wipe his brow. A second man relieved Martin with the sledgehammer. Martin and Paul leaned against a nearby tree, cooling off. I suppose people noticed that the food looked like it was going to run out, too. Martin recalled what Don said at the meeting the day before. Yeah, like the woodpile, people can see that the food supplies are going to run out faster than anyone thought. That had them bummed out even more. I mean, we all came here when we couldn't stay in our homes. But where do we go after the town farm? You got to admit, it looks bleak. Some of them are hoping your wife will have some magic solutions and the food will last until spring. A few of them think it's just a feel-good distraction from the hard truth. Well, Margaret can help, he said with a shrug, but she can't do magic. Still, this Clyde guy having feed corn could help a lot of people in town get by. I heard about that. Oh, did Candace come back and tell you all about the meeting? Martin asked. Candace? No. It was one of the other guys. He heard it from a lady at the dairy who heard it from another guy, or something. All I heard out of Candace was her trying to cheer folks up at the barn, that they had to just be patient, and how they wouldn't let them down. I wasn't sure who they were. Hey, Martin interrupted. I've seen most of the folks around here, but I haven't seen Adam or Trish. Well, sometimes they can be scarce when there's work to do. We probably scared them away with all our banging and clanging. Either that, or he's seen you and he doesn't want to get beat up again, Paul chuckled. I didn't beat him up, Martin said. Actually, I have no ill will toward him or Trish. They just weren't a good fit for our household. Yeah, well, I'm not so sure. Paul's comment was cut short. Yoo-hoo, boys, we're done in here. It was the shrill call of Mrs. Webster at the back door. Jen is out front with her buggy. Ah, looks like it's time for me to go. Martin put his jacket back on. Tell you what, I'll come out with Margaret again tomorrow. We'll see if we can finish this job. Ah, that'd be cool, thanks, Paul smiled. Maybe get some others involved, too. It'll be good for him. Margaret glanced up at Jen to see if she was listening. She was preoccupied talking to Jasmine. I couldn't say anything while I was there, she half-whispered to Martin. Oh? Oh, don't get me wrong. Mrs. Webster has terrific hostess skills, and I'm sure she puts on a very nice dinner party. But? But this isn't a dinner party, Margaret stated the obvious. I think Mrs. Webster got the concept of proteins and carbs, and she appreciated the vitamin chart. It's portion control that'll be her problem. She's got a grandmother's instinct for meals. A full belly is the only benchmark. I think Candace will be more successful at portion control. Well, sure, just having her in the room will put off people's appetites, quipped Martin. Martin, Margaret rebuked him, but with a hint of a smile. 
What? She has a creepy smile. That's not nice. Margaret looked away, but nodded. Although she does have a creepy smile. What I meant was, she understands the need to control portions. The portions chart are what she needed, too. To, let's say, guide Mrs. Webster. Nonetheless, the town farm will need more supplies. They can't feed all those people through the winter with just what they've got. What about that Clyde guy's corn? That has to help, right? It can, Margaret said. It's no all-you-can-eat buffet, but from what you told me Clyde might have, it's just about enough to give everyone in town, even including the folks at the town farm, one decent portion of hominy, born in whatever form, a day until the end of March or so. Interspersed with supplies on hand, it looks like we could make it work. The trick will be paying for it, said Martin. Clyde doesn't strike me as the charitable giving sort. And the people who've ended up a town farm are those who didn't have any resources in the first place. Well, something has to be done, Margaret added. No one else has enough to carry these people through. Jen's trap bumped off of the last of the pavement and onto the old Stockman Road. It was too bumpy for conversation. Keeping from being bounced off of the narrow package shelf took concentration. It was a relief to be dropped off at the end of their driveway. Say, uh, Jen, Martin had to speak up over Jasmine's impatient whinnying. Have you given any thought to a bigger rig? Uh, maybe with full seats? He was partially joking. Matter of fact, I have. Shush, girl, settle down. You aren't the first one to complain about the trap's accommodations, she chuckled. Robert made me up what he calls the cargo wagon out of his old pickup's back end. He put a couple of bucket seats up front, but it's still too heavy for Jasmine. But, hey, hey, Jasmine, settle down. Jeez, girl. I'm training a pair of saddlebreds as a team to pull it. They're not used to such tack, so it's taking time. Could be Robert's cargo wagon will be too much for them, too. I might need some Clydesdales for that. Jen let out a hearty laugh. Jasmine mistook the arms raised in laughter as the signal to go. She bolted. Looks like we're going, Jen called over her shoulder. See you tomorrow. Martin looked up the meadow trail. Judy stood at the top of the rise, waving to him. He waved back. She had a handheld radio in one hand, but nothing in the other. Martin held up his carbine and pointed to it. Even from a hundred yards away, Martin could see the unmistakable body language of, Oh, please. Judy turned sideways and pointed over her shoulder at the 1022 slung onto her back. Martin gave her a theatrical thumbs up. I'm going to take this stuff in the house, said Margaret. We need to go check for eggs, too. Looks like Tyler and Charles have been making progress on the truck. I'll be out here with them, Martin said. Hey, Charles, your new intercooler is looking good. Got it all mounted, I see. Yeah, it's not facing into the airflow as much as I'd have liked. But it wouldn't fit any other way. Tyler thinks we can rig up a scoop or something if we need to. Oh, you're just in time to fire it up for another filter test said Tyler. Our latest attempt reuses the ammo can from version D, but with some of the baffles and some oil-soaked foam rubber. We're thinking that the heavy stuff will fall out going through the baffles and the lighter stuff will stick to the oil. Uh, I see you have a nice pile of chips and chunks, Martin said. Yeah, Lucas sure does love to chop stuff with that hatchet, Charles laughed. Yeah, good to see boyish urges put to productive use. I do like to chop, Lucas beamed at being mentioned by name. But if you have enough for now, 
I need to go and move my solars. It won't take long. I can come back and chop more. He ran into the front yard, where the heads of the sidewalk lights were scattered like Easter eggs. One of the chores Lucas embraced with zeal was being the shepherd of a flock of solar battery rechargers rigged up from the sidewalk lights. Being a dozen loose items seemed like a pain at first. But with an eager shepherd, their small size allowed the little solar cells to be optimally positioned in patches of sun, no matter where the shadows shifted. While Martin and Charles scooped chips into the top of the gasifier, movement in the woods caught Martin's eye. He glanced at his carbine, leaning against the back of the cab. He took a slow sidestep closer to the carbine and moved his hand close to the coat pocket where the high point sat. Tyler and Charles heard the leaf rustle and also stopped work. Their hands, too, moved toward pockets or holsters. Two taps, wood on wood. A pause, followed by two more taps, came from the woods. That was the day's recognition signal. Martin let out a breath and tapped a stick three times on the truck's stake rail. Carlos and Susan emerged from the brush. Martin didn't want to admit to himself that he was glad to see her, but he was. He had seen her only briefly in passing in the dark before breakfast. They had spoken very little since his anger meltdown over Eric. Susan flashed a brief smile as Martin made eye contact, but she quickly regained her all-business face. Martin wanted to ask her if she was doing okay after a long patrol, but didn't want to say anything out loud. His eyes must have telegraphed his thoughts. Susan nodded slightly and broke her stoicism to allow another hint of a smile to flit by. Martin smiled, too. He was always glad to know that she was okay. To cover his smile, he quickly looked at his watch. Ah, I guess it's time for the next patrol. I saw Judy up on the ridge. She should be down shortly. See anything out there? No, Mr. Martin, said Carlos. No feetprints, no broken stuff or trash bits or anything. Did you have any run-ins with those college kids at the gravel pit? Martin asked. No, no trouble with them, said Carlos. We did stop on the high ground beyond the pond and use some binoculars to see into their camp. Susan nodded silently. We saw their little huts. A few of them were talking while they were working on something too little to see. Maybe grinding roots or something. At least their motions looked like grinding, but that was all we saw of them. Sorry I'm late, everybody, Judy was out of breath from running down the meadow path. I was picking up somebody, but I couldn't tell where they were. She held up the handheld ham radio for Martin to admire. Look at this. Walter gave it to me last night. Isn't this just the coolest thing ever? He gave you that? Martin asked. Well, he said I could use it, but I had to take good care of it because it's only on loan. He said he didn't use it much because the range was bad. But I've gotten quite a few things already. Maybe being up on the ridge helps. I don't know. He's been teaching me all about being a radio operator, too. He says I should only listen right now, but if I did have to transmit, to use the call sign K1NTZB. I actually transmitted this morning, my first time, and I got somebody. They answered, she squeaked. Ready for patrol? asked Dustin as he walked up. He took the walkie-talkie and shotgun from Carlos. Oh, just a sec. Judy quickly disentangled herself from the antenna cable. Tyler can tell you all about what we heard this morning. She handed the radio and antenna to Lucas. Now remember, Lucas. I know, I know, Miss Judy. I must be very careful and not to drop it, or Mr. Walter will be very angry. Right, and when you charge the batteries? 
I will set it on the carpet while I charge the batteries. Do not worry, Mrs. Judy. As Dustin and Judy set off to start their patrol, she looked over her shoulder a few times, as if to make sure that Lucas hadn't dropped Walter's radio. Almost walking into a tree convinced her that she needed to keep her eyes forward. I pity the poor soul around her when she has her first baby, Tyler said quietly. It wears off, Martin said with a smile. Oh, Carlos, when you're done with your nap, come see me. I've got another woodworking project I'd like to talk to you about. Sure, Mr. Martin. Carlos smiled broadly. Despite being tired, he enjoyed working with wood. Well, let's fire it up, Tyler said. Charles turned on the priming fan. Martin inserted the burning roll of paper into the burner door. Within a minute, the chips in the burn chamber were glowing brightly. He closed the door and leaned left so he could see the smoke coming out of the jet. The thin plume was very white, mostly steam. So, Judy came running down the hill earlier today, all excited, Charles was making conversation. Firing up the gasifier to usable levels took time. Watching smoke was pretty boring. Yeah, Tyler chimed in. She said she was listening to some guy transmitting from the coast, some guy named Ray. Oh, I think I might have heard Walter talking to that guy, Martin said. He peeked in the burn chamber to see that the fire was catching properly. It was. Why was hearing from Ray so exciting? Charles leaned over so Martin could see him. We were telling your son about our plans to get a truck to run on wood gas so that we could be entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs, interrupted Tyler. Just say businessmen. Yeah, yeah, that's easier, said Charles with a smile. Businessmen. Anyhow, as businessmen, we plan to use our truck to trade stuff between the surrounding towns. Sort of a take on our Monday market days at the town hall, but on a wider scale. We figure the towns around here all have more of a something, but a need for something else. Like rural areas with lots of forest have wood, people in the cities have very little wood. We're not sure what the city people might have to trade with, added Tyler. Sounds like all they've got in abundance are hungry people and no skill and crime. Uh, what about auto parts? Martin asked. Maybe with a concentration of vehicles, they would have spare truck parts and such. Ah, now you're talking, said Charles. Truck parts, exactly. We trade some firewood for truck parts, stuff like that. So I was saying about Judy being all excited, resumed Tyler. We were talking with Dustin about our plans, and of course Judy was right there. I mentioned thinking that if fishermen were still catching fish off the coast that they'd have a hard time shipping them anywhere. I figure people on the coast were getting sick of eating fish, so they might want to trade for firewood or something. Judy heard all that, so when she was listening to this Ray fellow, he was talking to Walter or something about that very thing. Some people on the coastal towns were taking up collections of fuel oil to run a fishing boat. The oil donors were like partners, and each got a share of the catch. Charles took his turn at interrupting. Judy was all excited to hear about things like that. They were kind of like what we were saying, so I coaxed her. Nagged, more like, quipped Tyler. Coaxed, insisted Charles. I asked, nicely, if Judy would ask this Ray guy if he thought people were getting sick of eating fish and they wanted to trade for something else. Oh, hey, Martin pointed to the plume of smoke. We've been so busy talking we didn't see that the fire's ready. The smoke coming out was a pale blue-gray and much more transparent. Okay, Charles, said Tyler. 
Crank up the power on the fan. We need to simulate the draw of your big 300. Charles turned a knob on a rheostat, spliced in with electrical tape. The fan whined at a higher pitch. The blue smoke billowed out faster. Charles held a thin white cloth across the plume for a long moment and then pulled it out to study it. He squinted skeptically. Tyler motioned for him to put the cloth back in and test the smoke again. He held the cloth in the smoke stream a second time. It was obvious that there was less smoke. It flowed slower. Charles fiddled with the rheostat, but the fan was spinning as fast as it could. Martin snuck a peek at the fire to see if it was going out. Well, there's plenty of coals, he said, but they're not very bright. I don't think it's drawing very well. The fan's on full, insisted Charles. I believe you, but the coals don't lie. Check the filter, said Tyler. Charles popped open the ammo can filter assembly. Gray smoke billowed out for a moment. Charles coughed and fanned the residual smoke away. He gingerly pinched the foam elements to lift them out. Well, the good news is it's not as hot as last time. The intercooler must be doing its job. The bad news is that my baffles idea didn't work for beans. Charles presented the foam rectangle for Tyler and Martin to see. Look at that. All those flakes and char and ash clogged it up. They stuck to the oil. I thought for sure the heavy stuff would fall out as it went around the baffles. Shut her down, said Tyler. Filter plan G is a failure, too. The three men each found a place to sit and sulk while they tried to imagine what filter H might do differently. We ain't ever going to be trading for fish if we can't get this thing to work right, muttered Charles. So I gather Judy did talk to this Ray, Martin asked. A change of topic seemed like a good idea. She did. She was all sorts of nervous about transmitting without a license. I think Walter put the fear of God into her. I told her that Walter wouldn't have given her that semi-official call sign if he didn't think she should ever transmit. That tipped the scales. She ran back up the hill. Wasn't gone more than ten minutes, I figure. Yeah, she came running back down. Tyler took his turn at telling the tale. She said Ray told her that people were getting sick eating fish and did hanker to trade for something else. That was music to our ears. Apparently, Ray told her that Walter's nickname for her is Newshawk. She was pretty tickled to hear that, and all bubbly at passing on the good news to us. Which isn't all that good if we can't lick this filter problem, said Charles. All three resumed their thinking poses. The problem seemed to be how to get the ash and char flakes to fall out of the airstream instead of clogging up filter material. What if we go back to that vortex idea, Martin asked. He stepped through the debris field of cast-off assemblies to lift up a galvanized cylinder with a long cone riveted to its bottom. Filter C didn't work, complained Charles. Ash just isn't heavy enough to be spun out. The air just keeps spinning fast enough and keeps the flakes suspended. I know, I know, said Martin, but I was thinking. What if he had lots of little holes down here in the cone, one-way holes that let the air leak out so it slows down? Have a double wall around the cone so that the air is pulled off. The air slows down and maybe the ash will settle out. Martin held up the assembly like a game show assistant. One-way holes, said Charles. What the heck are one-way holes? I know it sounds odd, but I saw this turkey thing made out of a metal funnel. That knick-knack lady at the market days was trying to sell them, remember? 
Charles and Tyler looked at each other skeptically. Well, she was there, and she was trying to sell her metal junk. Anyhow, my point is, she had this funnel turkey, and it had little triangular areas punched in all around it, supposed to look like feathers, which I guess it sort of did. But never mind. Think of them as little triangular hood scoops. Martin gave up on visual metaphors. What if this lady has a tool, or a machine, that makes these little punches? See? If we had all kinds of little hood scoops around the lower part of the funnel, and that they faced away from the vortex, that way the ash wouldn't get scooped in. What they would do, though, is reduce the air pressure down in the lower part of the cone, slow the air down. The ash falls out down here, away from the intake up on the top. See? Huh? Worth a try, right? Martin thought it was a good idea. He wanted to encourage the other two. Even if his idea didn't work out, men with hope think better. Worth a try, I guess, Charles stood up and stretched. Well, baby bro, sun's getting low. We'd better be heading back for supper. Don't want Mom or Ruth Ann getting angry at us again. Martin waved as they walked up the meadow path toward their house on the other side of the hill. His plan H-filter required two things. Finding the knick-knack lady, with no idea where she lived, and her actually having the machine he imagined. Both seemed like long shots. Thus ends Chapter 2. The town farm is shaping up, but it is still a rather bleak home for the unprepared. One man's harvest of feed corn offers some hope that the people of Cheshire won't run out of food during the winter. Are they pinning too much hope on that corn? As of now, early June 2022, I still have some unclaimed codes for a free copy of the audiobook version of Book 1 on Audible. If you'd like one, just email me at mick at mick-roland.com and I'll send you a code. Thanks. <laughs>